there's an amazing scene from a classic 80s movie. You've probably heard of it, maybe even seen. It's called Crocodile Dundee. And the movie, it's kind of a strange concept. If I remember correctly, it's it's based around this guy named Mick Dundee, and he's he's basically like Australian Indiana Jones or something, this like outback Australian ranger kind of dude. And and he has a girlfriend. She lives in New York City, and he, he travels at some point in the movie to New York City with his girlfriend. And there's this awesome scene I remember where um, people quote it all the time. He They walk outside of his hotel, and the two are together, he and his girlfriend. And, and a thief comes up, a mugger comes up, this young guy, and he pulls out a switchblade, and he says, give me your wallet. And, and Crocodile Dundee's girlfriend like freaks out. She's like, hey, 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 give him your wallet, because he's got a knife. And Crocodile Dundee laughs, and he goes, that's not a knife. This is a knife, and he he pulls out this huge Bowie knife. It's more like a small sword, and he carves up the dude's jacket a little bit, and he sends the muggers on their way, and they run off. And it's really funny, right? It's this funny '80s movie scene, but it illustrates a spiritual point that I want to focus in on today. If you're gonna pick a fight, you better be bringing the right weapon. I wonder. If you have found yourself in a in a spiritual battle of sorts without the right weapon. My name is Nick Morrow. I'm one of the pastors at Common Ground West. And we've been studying the book of Acts for the entire year of 2020 now. And it's been amazing what God has taught us over the year. How the chapters or passages in Acts we've been studying have correlated with things going on in our culture week by week even, as we study through the book of Acts. It's no mistake that the Lord led us to, to go through the book of Acts this year, for sure. We even were tempted to break from it when COVID hit or when the race uh, riots and demonstrations broke out, and we didn't, and it's been amazing through all that what the Lord's taught us. The past few weeks, we've been, we've been tracking with uh, Paul, uh, a missionary, one of the early Christian missionaries, and his companions as they preached the gospel around what at that time was like the entire known world basically. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. If you have your Bibles or Bible reading device with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience? He asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting this message and publicly speaking out against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that the people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick, sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. 
A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits, and they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars, and so the message of the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go to Rome. He sent his two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a while longer in the province of Asia. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines to the Greek, to, of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you've seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! At last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple, and they have not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session, and the officials can hear their case at once. Let them make formal charges, and if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I'm afraid we're in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government, since there's no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them, and they dispersed. Now, as I say 
pretty much every week. There are more themes in this chapter to cover than I can cover in the next 15 to 20 minutes. But I want to encourage you, keep reading your Bible throughout the week. Keep reading Acts 19. Actually, read it. Different translations. Read a commentary on it. Read um, and pray and ask God to reveal different things to you. And He'll unpack your own themes, maybe for your own life, even your own family's life, as you read and study the book. But I want to focus in on one theme today. Perhaps the funniest scene in all the book of Acts. Maybe the funniest scene in the whole Bible. What happened to these seven bros that got their butts whooped by a demon? <laughs> what is going on here? This scene is like, it's both hilarious and horrifying at the same time when you think about it. Some Jewish men, these are brothers in this case, they were going around, they're trying to cast out demons. And they try and cast out this one demon by saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches out, come out, or whatever, right? And the demon answers them. And at this point, I don't even know whether I should be laughing or crying or hiding. And the demon says to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then the demon-possessed man beats them so savagely, they run from the house naked. Or as my extended family might say, naked. <laughs> These dudes got beat so ruthlessly, they were naked when they ran away. Have you ever been whooped that hard in your life? Me neither. I don't know what is going on here. The scene is just hilarious to think about and also horrifying to think about it, right? Now, this passage might not be so weird, might not be so shocking, except that it's surrounded by passages on all sides where, where Paul and his companions are actually successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name, right? We've seen it in chapters over the last several weeks. We'll continue to see it. The, the disciples, Paul, especially in this chapter, casting out demons in Jesus' name. We can't get this far in Acts without realizing there is power in the name of Jesus. He gives power. What sticks out to me in this particular uh, passage in this chapter is the contrast right? Between the power that we see in the disciples and in Paul that, that God gives to them and the lack of that we see in the seven sons of Sceva, right? This leads me to uh, my big idea for the day, right? If you like to take notes and you take notes at home and all that sort of thing, this would be it. Religion has no power in it. In the kingdom of God, power always beats pretense. Relationship always beats religion. Real passion always beats pretending. I could have maybe titled this uh, sermon, How Not to Get Your Butt Kicked by a Demon, Sanitized for Church Purposes. <laughs> right? These guys were clearly in, the, in over their heads here. Kind of like the mugger in, in Crocodile Dundee. Right? The demon says, that's not a knife. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting to me. The text text points out here that these were seven brothers. All of them were sons of a Jewish uh, priest, a Jewish high priest named Sceva, right? Now, remember that the high priest, the, the Jewish council were the ones that put Jesus on trial and killed him some years earlier. It's noteworthy then, maybe this is even a hidden subtext uh, by the author, Dr. Luke, that the offspring of religion always breeds powerlessness. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back. 
people, especially if you're like me and you grew up with a lot of what I would call religion, you know, fundamentalist kind of uh, religious version of Christianity, the offspring of religion always breeds powerlessness. There's no power in religion. Now, there's lots of things that Luke, who, who wrote Acts, was pointing out here, but one of them was pretty clear. Religion has no power or authority in God's kingdom anymore. Right? The law was useful for a period of time. We read through the Old Testament, the law was really good. God gave the law as a, as a gift of sorts to the people. But that era was dead and gone, and we live now in a new covenant. We see the Jewish people here, they're trying to hold on to the religion, treating Jesus' name like some sort of incantation, and instead of them defeating the demon, they're the ones who get defeated. It's also fascinating to me that the demon knew Jesus' name. Not that part. Of course it knew Jesus' name, but the demon actually knew Paul's name as well. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's power, right? How did the demon know Paul's name? I suppose, I can only assume after reading the text, that it's because Paul carried with him the power of Jesus. And the power of Jesus, the name of Jesus, was the demon's greatest nightmare. Paul walked in real authority, real spiritual authority, right? There's this whole spiritual realm of which God is the head, right? And everything under, under him, even in the spiritual realm, uh, is subservient to him, including demons, right? They have to do what he says, he has the authority, and Paul carried that authority with him in Jesus' name. The sons of Sceva tried to claim Jesus' authority without any relationship with Jesus. Right? And they end up like, like kids with a, with a toy sheriff's badge and a pop gun trying to arrest someone. And instead, they're the ones who get arrested. And this is all, all good and intriguing and maybe even kind of entertaining. But... I think it provides some valuable reflections for us. And this is where it gets sobering for me, right? Have you ever tried to use the Christian faith, maybe in a sort of religious way, and found that it had no power in your life? That's a sobering thought for me. I have done that, and I can tell you from experience it does not work. Have you ever gotten so wrapped up with Christian pretense the church thing, the Christian thing that you actually miss the power of the Spirit of God? Now, you, you probably know that Paul, who we've been reading about in Acts, he wrote a bunch of letters to the churches that he started, right? And these, these letters, uh, they make up a good chunk of the New Testament. Now, I've been reading through several of these letters this year, and I've noticed Paul includes a, a particular prayer in pretty much every letter to every church that he writes to. It's one of the few themes that's in like every single letter. Almost every book in the New Testament written by Paul includes some version of this prayer. I pray that you will be filled with the power of God's life-giving spirit. Or in other places, he says, I pray that you will be filled with resurrection power. Paul knew the importance of the spirit's power in a Christian's life. For sin, for the demonic, for sickness, for impossible situations, Paul knew the importance of power. Do you see that power in your life? Do you see that power in your family's life? I read a book years ago called Power from on High by a famous preacher from the 1800s. His name was Charles Finney. 
And Finney is known for his, uh, for many things. He's known for his anti-slavery work. He's known for the promotion of women in the church, which was really radical in those days, especially in the Presbyterian church where he worked. He's probably best known, though, for his preaching, his, his evangelism, and his preaching being filled with the power of God. So much so that he wrote books about it, like this one that I read called Power from on High. And in this book, Finney describes countless moments of people getting saved, people turning from themselves toward Jesus, and there's, there's just so many miraculous things that happen from the power of Jesus. And Finney would be the first to say it wasn't him, it was Jesus' power, and he was just willing, right? He said, though, that he began to recognize when the power of God was on him, and any time it left him, he would go and he would pray and fast until it returned. I long to live with that sort of passion for the power of God in our day. I look out in our day and I see a lot of Christians bringing a knife to a gunfight. You know what I'm saying? When we pick up the weapons of religion, they fail us every time because religion has no power in it. What if we learned? What if we became obsessed with being filled with God's power that comes from his spirit? Remember that the battle, and I don't care what battle we're talking about, it could be racism, it could be politics, it could be a global pandemic, sickness, the battle is not against flesh and blood, right? There's a spiritual battle happening, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it's happening. And when we come to that battle, we need to bring the right weapons. I long to live with a passion and obsession with the, seeing the resurrection power in my life, in our church's life, in my family's life my kids' lives. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, millennials and the church. Now, I'm a millennial. I read all these articles and I read these statistics and all these, you know, magazines, all this stuff, and they talk about millennials leaving the church. It's funny because they're, <laughs> they're rarely actually written by millennials, which is a funny side note to me, but I have a theory and it's almost never represented in the articles, never represented uh, in these statistics. Now, I have a theory. The reason that, that people my age and people younger are leaving the church is because we don't see the power of God on display. Right? If we want entertainment, we can go, I can go watch a Coldplay concert or you too, you know, downtown. If, um, if, if I want information, right, I can go to different places, but I tell you the only place you can see the power of God on display is in his church through his people. That's the only place, and we need it so, but we need it as badly ever now as we ever have needed it. And on just a personal side note, if I ever walk into a church, right, or if I'm ever at a church, whenever, and we've been at different places throughout the past, but if I'm ever in a place and it, there doesn't seem to be a, a passion for the presence of God, for the power of God, I will bounce so quickly. <laughs> because I don't know if you're like me. I grew up in church, right? I've been to hundreds, I'm sure thousands and thousands of church services. And I've been part of so many powerless sermons and so many powerless worship sets. I just don't have time for it anymore. We don't have time for powerless Christianity. We need Christianity full of resurrection power. Can I get an amen? I know you're at home. I know I can't hear you. This gets me fired up. Notice how when Paul travels and he does miracles in Jesus' name, his handkerchief has the power of the Holy Spirit in it. I want to live that kind of life. So much of Jesus flowing through me that even my hankies can do miracles. 
Paul lived in constant relationship with Jesus. If I could summarize Paul's relationship with Jesus that we see in Acts, that we see in his letters throughout the New Testament, I would say this. He was bananas about Jesus. There was an evangelist and a singer uh, who influenced my life in a big way. Uh, Of course, I, I didn't know him. I wasn't even alive when he was alive. His name is Keith Green. I'm sure I've talked about him before, but many of you have heard of him. Many of you maybe grew up on his music. Keith Green was a hippie. He got saved during the Jesus movement in the 1970s, and he became this radical on-fire evangelist. And people would ask him all the time, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he said, well, you know, does it mean that you read your Bible? No. Does it mean you go to church? No. Does it mean you're in a Christian group? No. He said, "I, I would just summarize it as this. His definition was, Being a Christian means you're completely head over heels, bananas about Jesus. (laughs) You're obsessed with Jesus. That's what I want from my life. What would it look like for you to be obsessed? That is my prayer. So this is my invitation for you today, whether you're by yourself or with your family. Ask the Holy Spirit where you might be living in pretense, relying on religion rather than the power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ask God to give you a greater desire for His Spirit flowing through you. Ask Him for a greater desire in our church. Ask Him to see the resurrection power. And I'm not talking about just the sensational guys. It's not just the the miracle stuff. Of course, that's amazing. And I believe in that. And we've seen some of that stuff even in our church. I'm talking about the everyday resurrection power, right? Relationships mended, past wounds healed, on and on. Uh, solutions to problems we didn't even know that there could, could be solutions for. This is where we need God's power. And finally, I would say, pray for that, ask for that, expect that, and then find ways or find prayers, exercise that power. Right? If you know people who are sick, pray for the people who are sick. Pray for people who don't know Jesus to come to trust in Him. Pray for opportunities to share Jesus with other people. I know we're limited in our social interactions, more so right now than usual, but you still see your family. You might see people at school or work. You might even see people through Zoom. Listen, you can lead people to Jesus through Zoom. I have, I'm going to be spending some time with a family member coming up. I hope to talk to them about Jesus. I'm going to pray for us today. And if you, um, if you want to receive this prayer, if you want to see more of the power of God in your own life, your family's life, or our church, I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one, stand. And number two, um, just put your hand over your heart. That often signifies a reverence, right? Jesus, show us your resurrection power. Though we don't want to end up like the seven sons of Sceva, who, who show up to a gunfight with a knife and, and try to use religion in our lives to solve any number of problems, to exercise your authority without any relationship with you. We want to know you. We want to be known by you deeply and intimately. God, we want to be obsessed with you. That's the greatest gift that you could give us, Lord, and we ask for that today. We beg you for that, that you would make us obsessed with you. And if we don't have the desire for that, God, I pray that you would give us the desire to have the desire. Lord, we pray expectantly that you want to do greater things in this church, greater things in our community than we have seen in the past greater things in our family, Lord, that we'll have testimonies and stories, even during COVID-19, even during quarantine, 
that we'll see stories of your resurrection, amazing power, blazing through our families and our lives, our work, places, school. Jesus, we ask these things in your powerful name. We pray, come Holy Spirit. Amen.